Please open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke's Gospel. You can find the uh, outline for our study in the bulletin. I'd like to begin this morning by reading the first four verses of Luke chapter 1. And then we will uh, see what the Lord has in store for us. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Lord God, as we begin now the study of this monumental gospel, the record of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of your Son, Lord, as we begin now to to look and set our eyes focused on Christ in your word, just pray that you would bless our time as we um, study this opening paragraph. We pray that you would give us confidence in the things that we have been taught, that that Luke's stated purpose and end for Theophilus would also be the benefit that we receive. And so, Lord God, we we just offer this time up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are beginning the study of a gospel which, if you take Luke and Acts together, I don't know if you know this, Luke, Acts, Paul's two writing projects that are in the Scripture, make up the single largest portion of any writer of the New Testament. He dwarfs Paul. If you were to add up all of Paul's letters to the size of Luke-Acts, Luke-Acts is far and away, without a close second, the largest chunk of the New Testament. Both letters addressed to Theophilus. And we're studying now Christ directly. That's what we're going to be diving into, is a book studying Christ directly. As we went through Zechariah, we saw Jesus and signs pointing to Jesus everywhere, but, but nowhere more focused, more centered is the living Christ than in the four Gospels. And so we're going to be diving into Luke's Gospel, and our study will not be a short one. Our study will not be a short one. There are 1,151 verses in Luke. If if, there, if we were to move along at a pace of 10 verses a week, which, let's face it, is optimistic, um, but if we were, no, and I think some portions we can move more quickly, but say we average 10 verses a week, that would give us 110 weeks of Luke without interruption. That's two years. You throw in series, pausing, and places where we're not going 10 verses a week, we're looking at a three, maybe even moving into a fourth-year study. And yet, the the attention, the the focus of Luke's gospel is so rich and so essential to our faith that I trust that we won't grow weary in it. Although, like I said, we will be taking some periodic um, diversions, moving aside, looking at other things. Luke's gospel is monumental. There are four gospels, as I, I trust you know in your Bible, four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of them are sometimes referred to as the synoptic Gospels. Um, synoptic meaning they overlap, like synonyms or words that have overlapping meaning. The, the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of common material, whereas John's Gospel is almost totally unique material. 
So there's the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then there's the Gospel of John. Luke is the largest, the grandest, and the most full Gospel account of the three synoptics. And this morning, we're going to look at these first four verses in part, because usually when you do a book study, you do an introduction to the study, and so we're going to mingle some of that introduction this week and next week while also taking a look at these first four verses. This morning, we're going to look at four issues in Luke's Gospel, the authorship, who wrote it, the recipient of the letter, who was it written to, the, the rough date of when it was written, when was, this, when was this composed, and look at Luke's description of his method of composition. That's the four points we're going to look at. So let's dive into our first point, the authorship of Luke's gospel. Now that may seem strange to you because I'm guessing at the top of every one of your Bibles it says Luke, right? But nowhere in the actual text of Luke's gospel does Luke name himself. So that's, that's a valid question. Who wrote this? Now, church tradition tells us it was Luke, but church tradition is not authoritative. So how, how then do we know who is speaking? Who, who composed this? I think we can figure it out from the Scriptures itself. Yes, I believe Luke wrote Luke, but I want to show you that you don't need to trust um, you know, ancient Near Eastern experts. You can just look in your Bible. So let's, let's draw some internal evidence from the book of Acts. If you keep your, your finger here as we try to solve who wrote this and establish the authorship, because I'm sure you know that there are those more liberal scholars who deny that Luke wrote this, um, and, and I think we can see clearly from Scripture he did. Go to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And just as we saw in Luke chapter 1, here we have another greeting and a pro- prologue to this writing. And in Acts 1, verse 1, the author writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit and to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive and then after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What we learn is the book of Acts is the sequel to the gospel of Luke. It's addressed to the same person, and this is the second book. So whoever's the author of Acts is the author of Luke. Fair enough? Now move along to Acts chapter 16. We learn some more details. Because whoever wrote Acts, starting in chapter 16, we'll see if you spot this, 16, starting in verse 10. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia. Did you catch that? When when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia. Whoever is the author of Acts, starting here in in, in Acts 16.10, is a first-hand witness. Up until this in Acts, the first 16 chapters, it's they went here, and they went and did this. And all of a sudden, starting in Acts 16, the author is part of this group. The author is taking place in this narrative. He's there alongside of Paul. He's Paul's traveling companion. And that goes on through 16, verses 10 through 17. What we learn is, is that I believe it's Luke, and I think you'll see by the end of this it is Luke, that Luke joins Paul at Troas and sails with him to Macedonia and eventually ends up in Philippi. And then the we language in Acts drops out for a bit. Jump over to chapter 20. 
What happens is Paul goes to Philippi, Paul gets arrested, and the wheeze drop out the second Paul's in prison. So by implication, Luke is not arrested and imprisoned. And then Paul goes and finishes his missionary journey, and a number of years later, Paul returns to Philippi where the we language is picked up again. In chapter 20, verse, I'll pick it up in verse um, 4. So Peter, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimius. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And again, the, the author picks back up traveling with Paul. So Luke meets up with Paul at Troas. He sails with them to Macedonia. He goes to Philippi. Paul gets imprisoned in Philippi and eventually leaves Philippi. Presumably, this person remains because he leaves the narrative until Paul returns on his third missionary journey to Philippi. And then once again, the us and we language gets picked up. And then this author travels with Paul all the way to Jerusalem, and, and we won't look through this, but in 27, one through 20, all the way through chapter 28, the author's with Paul all the way to Jerusalem. Luke travels with Paul all the way to Jerusalem, and the book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul imprisoned in Rome, awaiting trial. And so when we do the math of who Paul's traveling companions are, and Paul lists them in many places, Luke really drops out. He's the only person that this can be. So by a process of elimination, we know that the author of Luke is a close traveling companion of Paul who met up with him at Philippi, I mean at Troas, stayed in Philippi, ultimately went with him to Jerusalem. It's, it's got to be Luke. This is also the universal testimony point B of the early church. So the internal evidence, we know we've got someone who's a, who's a companion of Paul, a traveler with Paul, who has firsthand knowledge. And the universal testimony of the early church is for Lukean authorship. It's not until the last 100, 200 years or so that such things got questioned and debated and, and it's been largely accepted by the church. And again, not that that proves the matter, but you'd imagine that those people in the first, second, third centuries closer to the events, had some insight, some knowledge. And the fact that they universally agree, yet Luke wrote this, is encouraging. Which then leads us to conclude that the author of Luke's gospel is, in fact, point C, Paul's beloved physician, Luke. Turn over to Colossians chapter 14. Colossians chapter 14. And we're going to try to figure out who this Luke guy is. We don't know a ton about him, but we can learn some facts. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4, sorry, verse 14. Did I say that wrong? Chapter 14. I'm sorry. Colossians 4, 14. My, what, you don't have Colossians 14? No. Um, Colossians chapter 4. And actually, I want to pick it up from verse 10 through verse 14. Paul's closing on his letter, and he's giving his greetings. Let me get a list of some of his workers. Colossians 4, 10 through 14. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. 
and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So Paul's name for Luke, he's the beloved physician, which also accounts to some degree for the language of Luke, that the the language of the Gospels is at different levels. I'm sure you understand you've, you've read things. Some of the things are at a higher level. They're harder to read. Luke's Gospel and Acts and, the, and Hebrews are the three most elevated forms of Greek. For a Greek student, if you're, if you're taking the class this Friday, you will not be translating much of Luke and Hebrews. The easiest stuff to translate is John. John writes down, puts cookies on the low shelf. Even though his content is profound, his prose, the words he's choosing, his syntax is much more straightforward. Doctors and educated person stands to reason it makes sense that Luke would be capable of, of a higher, more elevated form of prose and writing. He's a beloved physician. He's almost certainly a Gentile. Notice the separation here. Paul lists his workers who are of the circumcision. And then outside of that group, outside of those Jewish workers with Paul, he lists other people. Implication, Paul is, I mean, sorry, Luke. Luke is not one of the Jews working with, with Paul. Luke's also a Greek name. So almost certainly based on this passage in Colossians, Luke is a Greek We don't know when he got converted. It's possible that he came to faith when Paul went to Troas. It's possible he came to faith sometime earlier. We just know he meets up with Paul in Acts 16. He travels with him to Philippi. He stays there for a couple of years. Paul goes on, comes back on his third missionary journey. And then Luke attaches himself to Paul, goes to Jerusalem with Paul. And the last place we see him, if you'll turn to to 2 Timothy 4. You remember we studied this uh, about a year ago as we went through the pastoral epistles. He's, he's a loyal, loyal friend of Paul. Loyal friend of Paul. You remember Paul, at the end of his life, running, having run his course, is in jail, in prison. He's an old man. He sees death near. And writing to his, his son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.9, says this, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Luke was Paul's traveling companion. He's the beloved physician. And Luke was one of a handful of people who stayed with Paul at the end of his life. Luke alone is with me. He's a loyal and faithful friend of Paul. In fact, as we look at the source material, uh, the assumption is that, that much of what Luke's relating to us probably came from Paul. I mean, we, we know that he interviewed many people, but Paul really is, is going to, his, his language and, and his testimony is going to ring through Luke's gospel. So the authorship then is Luke. The Greek, the loyal friend of Paul, the beloved physician. So who's the recipient? In the prologue that we read, he's identified as a man named Most Excellent Theophilus. 
most excellent Theophilus. Now, Theophilus means lover of God. Lover of God. That's the blanks. And it's possible that's a real name. There's some evidence um, from external sources that people actually were called that. It's also possible it's a pseudonym meant to hide the identity of this person, to protect them. We're not entirely sure either way. Um, In both cases, in Luke and in Acts, he's identified as Theophilus. But what's more intriguing is the title, Most Excellent. And and that title makes him likely a Roman official. And and the reason I say that is that phrase, most excellent, only occurs two other times in the Bible. It's in Acts. And listen listen to the references. It's always to Roman officials and dignitaries. So in Acts 24.2... We read, when he, when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, quote, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. So speaking to Felix, he gets introduced as most excellent Felix. He's speaking to a high Roman official. A little bit later in um, Acts 26, 25, Paul said, quote, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking truth and rational words. So in Luke's own writings, the other two times this phrase most excellent comes, it's used to address a, a high up Roman official. And so it stands to reason then that the third time Luke uses this phrase is in the openings of Luke and Acts, that Theophilus, whoever he may be, is a Roman official which also might explain why there might be some attempt to hide the identity. This also links up with with Paul's claim in Philippians. And these are the things you can notice. At the end of Philippians, Paul's in chains, and he's said in Philippians, the gospel's not in chains, that the the gospel has gone out through the entire praetorian guard. And we read this at the end of Philippians 4.22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. the end of Philippians, we learn the gospel has penetrated Caesar's own household. There are converts in Caesar's household. The gospel is penetrating the Roman hierarchy. So it's entirely likely that Paul is writing this this book to someone in that hierarchy named Theophilus. Possibly even as an apologetic or defense in part for Paul, who at the end of Acts is awaiting trial in the Roman judicial system. Okay, so the author is Luke. The recipient is Theophilus. Let's look at the date of composition. When was this written? And we're not as much trying to zero in on the actual day and month and year as we are where in the biblical narrative, where in the biblical storyline does this take place? Well, I think there's a couple obvious facts that we can consider. Point A, it had to be after Luke joined Paul in in Acts 16, right? He couldn't he couldn't, be recording these, he couldn't be recording these events in Acts if, if he hadn't already met Paul. So it's got to be, and we know that's roughly around A.D. 55. Now remember, Jesus was crucified and resurrected roughly A.D. 33. So it's got to be after Luke joined Paul in Acts 16, but it's also got to be before Luke wrote Acts. I mean, because Acts is the sequel. You don't write the sequel first, you write the unless you're George Lucas, you write the sequel after you write the original. And so this has to be before he wrote Luke-Acts, and we know that that Acts ends with Paul awaiting his trial. It's before his imprisonment or his release, depending on how you reconstruct that. So it's got to be before 62 AD. 
It's also, interestingly enough, got to be before the writing of 1 Timothy. Because this is, this is stunning, and we'll, and we'll close our time looking at this, not quite yet, but the Gospel of Luke is actually quoted by Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18. So Paul can't possibly quote Luke if Luke isn't written. Fair enough? Okay. So that all of that then leads us to conclude this is written roughly from Rome, likely, in the year 60 to 61 AD. That's, that's when this is written. About 27, 28 years after the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So you've got the authorship, Luke, the recipient, Theophilus, the date. We're trying to figure out where this fits in the storyline. But now, actually diving into the text itself, and where we'll spend the rest of our time, Luke describes his, his reason and his method of composition. And this morning, we're going to look at his, his immediate goal. Luke has two purposes, he says, in, in doing this study. One is, is immediate and one is ultimate. If you look in, the, uh, in, in Luke 1, you'll see it. Inasmuch, he says, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So there's the immediate goal. He wants to write an orderly account. Most excellent Theophilus, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So his immediate goal, I want to create an orderly account. His ultimate goal, that orderly account is supposed to produce certainty. We're going to consider that with some more introduction next week on the themes of the book and the breakdown of the book. But now we're just going to spend our remaining time looking at is Paul is Luke, sorry, Luke states how he went about composing this gospel. It's fascinating. God doesn't speak for nothing, and so when Luke tells us the steps he took, God intends us to learn from that, to profit from that. And so what Luke says is he's not writing in a vacuum. He is aware that ever since Jesus rose from the dead, people have been either orally or in writing passing on this message. And he's aware of that. Many, he says, have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So we also know here that Luke is not an eyewitness. Luke wasn't there on hand at the crucifixion like John was. And many, he says, have attempted to compile this and then he says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So what we get from this is this, that Luke, over years, has been compiling and researching. He's, he's been interacting with the eyewitnesses. When he went to Jerusalem with Paul, he would have had a chance to speak to those who were still living, to Mary, to Zechariah. To, to speak to them, that might in part explain how he gets such intimate details. How else could he know what Mary said to the angel? How do we get the Magnificat? How do we know about the discussion between Zechariah and the angel in the temple? Well, it's possible that God just revealed it to him supernaturally, and he just, okay, he wrote it. But far more likely, given this context, he spoke to them. He talked to them. He did research. He, he dealt with eyewitnesses, which would include Paul. Paul, after all, had seen the resurrected Lord. A lot of Paul's language and phraseology echoes itself in Luke. It's clear that Luke is a student of Paul. His, his, his teacher's voice rings through the gospel. 
There's also, he lists, other written accounts closely followed. Now, this is where the, the Bible scholars and the theologians um, just dig in. And there's all this speculation about what the sources were and what sources was Luke using. And, and it, <laughs> Luke's whole point is that he's, corre- he's correcting, maybe the wrong word, he is doing a better job. His whole argument is, look, other people have tried to do this, insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Many people have tried to do this, just as those who are from the beginning are eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. In light of that, there's as many people have tried, and in view of that, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Which is to say, he's, he thinks he can improve upon what's being done. He looks at the corpus of people and their eyewitness accounts and the oral testimony and these writings, and he says, it seems good to me to attempt to do that as well. Implication, I'm going to improve upon that. Luke, I don't think, then, is referencing Matthew and Mark, but rather other, other traditions, other elements out there. He's consulted them. But he's writing independently. And the, re- the reason I say that is a whole school of thought that wants to argue that Luke is really just copying Mark and adding in some of the things from another document. And they make nothing, Luke nothing more than a guy sort of um, you know, cutting and pasting and gluing together four other manuscripts. That, that's not what he says he's doing here. He's done research. He's spoken to eyewitnesses. And he's, he's improving upon the documents that he's aware of. I don't think he'd speak of Luke and Mark, I mean, of Mark and Matthew that way. He's writing independently with careful and prolonged research. Point B, to give an orderly and full account. That's his goal. And, and I think he largely triumphs and succeeds. As we said before, this is a full gospel. This is 1,151 verses long. Big, big gospel. And its scope, and that's the blank there, Luke has the greatest scope of any gospel, exceeds any of the other gospels. Luke alone gives us not just the birth story of Jesus, but the birth story of John the Baptist. And, and Mary's prayer of praise when the angel comes to her. We get the, the shepherds in the field from Luke. Not only that, but, but Luke has the fullest account of the resurrection with the road to Emmaus and the disciples and the women who go to the tomb. From, from, from end of the story to end of the story, Luke gives us the most full and ordered account of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Now, God has purposes in the, in the shorter accounts. It's not to say this makes it superior to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but he says, my goal is to gather the information. My goal is to research and to lay it out in an orderly way. Well, he succeeds. He succeeds wonderfully. By the way, another, another point that's worth making is this isn't the, Luke's gospel, as if there's multiple gospels, and there's Matthew's gospel, and there's Mark's gospel. All the oldest Greek manuscripts were titled Kata Lukian, According to Luke, there's one gospel, there's the gospel, this is the gospel according to Luke. That's an important distinction to make. It's not multiple gospels, there's one gospel. There's one announcement of good news. This is Luke's telling of it. This is Luke's account of it. One of the other things that we see is that because of Luke's research, he is incredibly accurate and detailed. His use of medical terminology, the the ship Shipping terms used in the um, shipwreck in the later chapters of Acts. 
He's done his homework. In fact, as, as skeptics try to challenge the, the authenticity of these writings, it's been popular in, in some skeptical circles to say that, well, the Gospels were all written three or 400 years later in Egypt. It just won't fly. Luke has too much precision and too much detail in his account to be anything other than a close-to-the-source professional and scholarly researcher. I'm going to read you a quote here speaking about this. Experience shows, writes Stephen Neal, that nothing is more difficult to get exactly than titles. And you think about it, you go on vacation, you meet somebody, you, you meet somebody um, at the mall, or, and you talk to them, something happens, they tell you a story. What's the hardest detail to remember? The name. What does most of us have on our shirt right now? Why is that? We see each other week after week. Because names are hard. One of the reasons why names are hard is there's no logical reason why I'm a Jeremy. There's no logical reason why Daniel's a Daniel. Other things, the names fit and make sense, but the names, in many respects for us, are arbitrary. The hardest things to get right. Luke, let's add a further wrinkle on top of this. Rome, when it would take over places, would let them keep some form of their basic government. As long as they played ball and as long as they recognized the authority of Caesar, Rome would basically let them keep their forms of government. That's why the Jews retained some semblance of self-governance. Now, because of that, then, throughout the Roman Empire, there's all sorts of names for different political leaders regionally. And Luke knows them and nails them every time. Let me keep reading the quote. If this is generally true, he writes, that nothing's harder to know than names, it was all the more true in the very complex, ever-changing, political, religious, Greco-Roman world of the first century. The status of provinces, along with the titles of their officials, changed with some regularity. We cannot therefore help but be impressed when Luke drops a host of names and titles with his record, and without exception, indisputably gets them right. A quick survey of the confirmed evidence must present, presently suffice. Governors of senatorial provinces in Cyprus, Ikea, and Asia are accurately termed proconsuls. Luke knows that, and he names them the proconsuls. Whereas those over imperial provinces, such as Syria and Judea, are correctly termed as hagamon. Relatively, Herod is not called king of Galilee, but tetriarch, while other members of the Herod family, Agrippa I and II, are properly titled king. Similarly, Luke notes quite incidentally that Philippi is a Roman colony where magistrates are therefore called praetors, and those um, and whose attenders are called lictors or sergeants. In Thessalonica, however, the chief authorities are called politarchs, a term not found elsewhere in the literature, but six times in recent archaeological findings. The point is, Luke, Luke, the details of Luke acts are undisputably of someone very, very close to the source, someone who knows the subject matter he's dealing with, and he keeps getting it right, and he gets it right. He, he intended to put together an orderly account. He has succeeded. Now, all of this, then, I think raises some questions about how that fits in, then, with inspiration. How does research fit into inspiration? I mean, are, am I saying that, yes, Luke is inspired, and because he did research, it's even that much more trustworthy? Well, no. All of Scripture is inspired of God and profitable. All of Scripture is trustworthy. So how do we factor in? Luke goes to detail to tell us, I did research over years. 
I spoke to the sources. I consulted the eyewitness accounts. I, I looked up the manuscripts. How, how does that factor in? Well, two points here. One, inspiration, point one here, does not negate the human author. Inspiration does not negate the human author. And, and I think it's helpful to remember what the author of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. If you think about it, there are a multitude of ways that God has chosen to write Scripture, to write His Word. In one instance, His own finger, right, wrote the Ten Commandments. In other instances, you get what does look very much like divine dictation. When, when God speaks to Moses, He says, Okay, Moses, go to Pharaoh and say this. And you pretty much get the idea that God tells him what to say, and Moses either remembers it or takes notes, and he goes and he speaks. And those are various forms of inspiration, but it's not the only forms of inspiration. There are also times the prophets don't even seem to understand what they're writing. Peter talks about that the, the, concerning the prophecies of the Christ, that those who wrote it longed to look into and understand what they were writing. But when we're dealing with a, with a narrative like Luke... The, or the letters of Paul, we're not, we're not dealing with automatic writing. It's not as though Luke's getting ready to go to bed, and all of a sudden he hears a voice from God that says, that says, Luke, it's not time for bed yet. We've got some writing to do. And Luke gets up to his table, and he lights the candle, and okay. Dear Theophilus, dear Theophilus. You know, inasmuch as any, that, that's not the way Luke's gospel was written. It's clear that divine inspiration works with and through and not contrary to the, the human author. Listen to how, how 2 Peter describes the inspiration process. 2 Peter 1.21 No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Same term used of a boat being driven by the wind. And the, when the wind drives a boat, it, it is working with the boat's design and its keel and its rudder, moving it along. And what we gather from this is that the Holy Spirit moving, carrying men along in inspiration is not conflicting with and working against their nature and their language and their, their figures of speech and their personality, but with it, using it, overseeing it so that the final product is exactly what God wants it to be. Exactly what God wants it to be. And yet, Luke is really here. He's really here. If, if you don't believe that about inspiration and inerrancy, you run into problems with passages like Romans 1.11, where the Apostle Paul says, I long to see you. And you've got to ask the question, is that true? Does, did the Apostle Paul, in writing that, truly desire, or his eyes rolled back as it were in his head just writing? No, the New Testament writers, the writers of Scripture will oftentimes speak of their own emotions, their own desires, their own pleasure, their own sorrow. Paul saying, I long for you. I'm anxious for you. As, as a pure betrothed virgin waiting for a husband, he says to the Corinthians, I'm anxious for you. He talks in 2 Corinthians about nothing giving him more pain and suffering than his concern for the churches. And if that doesn't really speak to the Apostle Paul's emotional life, then I don't know what it means. Now, the Apostle Paul is present in the text. His, his heart and, and his passions are there along with the mind of God. That's one of the, the miracles of inspiration. Is it's, it's not that God and him speaking cancels out or negates the human author. They work in concert together. 
They work in concert together. So that various times in the New Testament, Psalms can be quoted, and it can be introduced as David says, or just as the Holy Spirit says, and there's no conflict there. It's not, well, who's speaking? Is it David or is it the Holy Spirit? And you say, yes. Who wrote Luke? Did, did the Holy Spirit write Luke or did Luke write Luke? And you say, yes, yes. It's also striking, though, and I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 5. Keep your finger in Luke, but turn to 1 Timothy 5. Is that Luke's gospel was immediately received by the early church. And what we're going to look at, I hope as we slow down and unpack it, is, is, is stunning to you as it is to me. Now remember, Timothy's written around 62 to 64 A.D., Three, three years, four years after the Gospel of Luke is written. They don't have fax machines. They don't have photocopiers. They don't have the internet. Mail took a long time. Letters did get passed. There was, there was mechanisms in place for that. So within three or four years of Luke's Gospel being written, Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 5. And he's talking in particular about the respect or the pay for elders. And in doing so, he says something stunning. Verse, uh, let's start at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. I want you to notice that. The Scripture says, there's a singular introductory formula. There are two quotes, right? This one introduction governs both quotations. The Scripture says this and that. The Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, which is a word-for-word quotation of Deuteronomy 25.4. Not surprising that an ex-Pharisee and Christian who believes the Bible is the Word of God would quote Deuteronomy saying the Scripture says. Do you know what the second quotation comes from? Word for word? Luke 10.7. Luke 10.7. And he doesn't say Jesus says. He's, it's the writings. The Scripture says. Now think about the implications of that because that is absolutely stunning. We start to unpack this. Because if you keep reading, Paul doesn't stop to to explain this. Paul does not act as though he's just dropped a bomb. He, he doesn't act as though he just said something that Timothy is going to go, whoa, whoa, what? In other words, the assumption is Timothy shares Paul's same belief because Paul just says, the Scripture says, he quotes Deuteronomy, he quotes Luke, and then verse 19, he moves on. Do not accept a charge against an elder except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He just moves along. So what does that mean then? That means... First of all, let's be obvious, Paul is aware of Luke's gospel, and Paul believes Luke's gospel is Scripture on a par with the books of Moses. Get that it's not sort of, it's useful. He quotes, the Scripture says, and he quotes Deuteronomy, he quotes Luke. Also, this means Timothy is of this opinion. Not only is Timothy of this opinion, Paul expects Timothy to track the quotation with half of a verse. I mean, how many of you, how many of us know Luke so well that we would have referenced, oh yeah, of course he's quoting Luke 10.7. But Paul is expecting Timothy to track with him, doesn't he? 
Paul's expecting Timothy's going to try. So not only is Luke known, and it's moved about the, the ancient world, and it's viewed as Scripture by Paul and Timothy, apparently it's being read and memorized. Because Paul is expecting Timothy to, to get the citation, to get the quotation. That's, that's a big deal. Three, three or four years after it's been written, it's already accepted by Scripture by Paul, by Timothy. Timothy's already memorizing it or reading it with such regularity that he catches a half-verse reference. But that's not all. At the end of 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to read this letter to the whole church. Implication, church at Ephesus believes that Luke's gospel is Scripture. Get that. The, the early church, as soon as this came off the press, or as soon as the ink was drying from the page, recognized Luke's gospel as Scripture and began quoting it. This is the only New Testament quotation of the New Testament in the New Testament. There is a reference to Paul's writing being Scripture in Second Peter, but they're not quoting Paul. They're just referencing Paul writes Scripture is basically what Peter says. This is the only New Testament quotation of the New Testament. And its implications are huge. Let me, let me tell you another implication. If you have any friends who are Roman Catholics and you get in discussions with them, what is one of the first arguments they bring forward to, to, to uh, either attack or to justify their position? And they will insist, I've heard this many times, what they'll say is something like this, you wouldn't have a Bible, Mr. Protestant, you wouldn't have a Bible if it wasn't for Roman Catholic councils. What they're saying is, is that the, the official canon of the New Testament, the list that we get from the Council of Nicaea, giving us the 66 books of the Bible, they're saying it took that council to determine what Scripture was, and since that was a council of what became now the Roman Catholic Church, therefore, if you were to, if you were to have a problem with the Roman Catholic Church, you have no Bible. How would you know what books were in the Bible, they're saying? To which I say First Timothy 5.18. Jesus' sheep hear His voice. Paul and Timothy and the church at Ephesus did not need a council to determine that Luke was Scripture and start quoting it. What the council did in, in, in Nicaea was not authorize Scripture, but recognize Scripture. In other words, the Christianity has been illegal, the church has been underground, and they all sort of come together. They're sort of, hey, we've we got these writings, we've got these writings, we, we think these are Scripture, and they get together and they, they recognize it for what it is. But Understand that within three or four years of it being written, without any counsel, without any you know, seal of approval, Jesus' sheep are reading and understanding this, this is the Word of God. It's exactly what Jesus said in John 10. His sheep would hear His voice and follow Him. We don't need counsels to tell us what Scripture is. We just need the Spirit of God. It's, it's absolutely stunning that, that God's Word is so powerful and so self-authenticating that within three or four years of its writing, Luke's Gospel is understood to be on a par with the books of Moses. And this is the book that we're going to study. This, this Gospel that is so self-authenticating, so self-identifying, so clearly God's Word, this is the book that we are going to study. And I look forward to the great joy to that. But I want to I encourage you with that notion that God's Word speaks for itself. It defends itself. You let the lion out of the cage, he'll take care of himself. Somehow the early church saw the power, the clarity, the wisdom of God in Luke's Gospel. And as we study this, I want you to know these, these words are dependable. These accounts are true. These details are accurate. 
This is the Word of God. And so as we go forward over the next three or four years studying it, I trust that as we study God's Word, He will reveal Himself to us. He will give us that benefit and we will grow in the knowledge and stature of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank You this morning for this brief introduction to Luke's Gospel. And Lord, we pray that You would give us that confidence that we would hear Your voice in this text, that we would evidence that we are Your sheep as we hear and feed and follow your voice in this word. Lord God, we want to see Jesus high and lifted up. We want to see his glory. We want to know you more fully. We want to to know your will more clearly. We want to hate our sin more fully. All those things, Lord, I pray that you would work in us and through us as we study your word. Lord God, establish us now as we go in fellowship and, and drink coffee and talk to one another that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.